Hey everyone, welcome back to the Midtown Midweek, a resource to further equip you to be with Jesus and become more like Jesus as we continue the conversation from Sunday's teaching. I'm Jake Blair, the Director of Equipping, and like we mentioned last week, what you see on Sundays is a 30 to 40 minute long sermon, but what you don't see is the weeks and weeks, sometimes even months of prayer and study and preparation that our pastors put into these sermons. And oftentimes we have really good Bible content that for the sake of time or the flow of thought just does not make it to the Sunday sermon. So we wanted to have this podcast as a platform to really talk more into the passage. And this week we heard from Tim again. Hey, Tim, what's up? Round two. Here we go. So uh, recap us, Tim. Uh, what did we talk about? What was the main point? What was the passage? First Timothy 1, we did 6 through 17. So week one was Paul telling Timothy, hey, defend the church of Ephesus from false teaching. Push back against false teachers. Tell them to sit down and be quiet. Stop teaching the false teaching that they're teaching. Week two, Paul directly addresses what that false teaching is. And he says that it's uh, how they're approaching and teaching the law. So he sets up that what they are saying is you have all these extra things you need to do to make yourself right with God. But he says, no, the purpose of the law, one of the purposes of the law is to be a mirror, that it shows us we cannot live up to the goodness or holiness of God. And so because of that, we need someone to come and save us. And so the law is a mirror, but we know about a mirror is a mirror can't fix us. It can't change us. It can show us the blemish. It can't wash the blemish away. We need someone to come in and do that. And so that's what Jesus does for us is that he shows up, saves us, ransoms us, that we are recipients of God's grace. Uh, kind of summarized in that verse 15, where he says that it's a trustworthy saying that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, which is all of us. All of us are sinners before before God. And so we've got to kind of just sit in the gospel, that the gospel is good news for the lawbreaker and the law follower. It doesn't matter if you're trying to do good or you know that you can't do any good. The gospel saves us all. First question for you, Tim, what didn't make the final cut of the sermon? So like I mentioned, we have so much stuff that usually doesn't make it to the final whittle of the sermon. So what, what did we not hear? So much. So I went Almost 30 minutes. My sincerest apologies for all you, uh, on Thursday. That Zoom call was rough. Rough. <laughs> uh, but there was still a lot that got cut out. And part of that is because we're talking about the law. And so part of it was just the laws. There's so much confusion surrounding that. So we'll get to that in a second. But, but one of the things that didn't make it that was more just like that I got fixated on and really liked and just it wasn't going to fit because it would have taken 20 minutes uh, is the way that the list of things that Paul gives specifically in nine and 10 verses nine and 10 reflect the 10 commandments. So he says, this is why the law is given. And then he goes through this list where he says things like the lawless and disobedient, the ungodly and the sinners. And you actually see uh, parsed out really the, all of the 10 commandments. And I don't know, I don't, I don't want to speculate and say Paul was definitely trying to like whittle it all in there, whatever. I do think the Holy Spirit inspires the word of God. And so I do think there's some fun parallels that is more nerdy than anything else. So I don't want to be like, Paul definitely knew what he was doing. Got him in your face, <laughs> Ephesus. But I do think it's like just kind of interesting to see. So I'll just give you a few, won't go through all 10. Um, but he says, I mean, he starts out, but the law was given for the lawless and disobedient. So it is a, a reference to thou shall have no other gods before me, that it's the lawless. It's those who reject God, which is the same thing that the first commandment is telling you not to do. Uh, the third, he says, for the profane, which has reference to the third commandment, thou shall not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Don't have profanity against the name of God. You have uh, a really clear one, those who strike their fathers and mothers, 
Fifth commandment, honor thy father and mother. Then he says murderers. Sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. And then he says the sexually immoral, homosexuals, those who practice homosexuality. Seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. It's this whole idea of following God's sexual ethic. Uh, enslavers is a re- reference to the eighth commandment. Thou shalt not steal. You shouldn't take people and put them into captivity. Uh, so you just have like these really cool parallels between this list Paul is giving that references in some ways uh, back to the, the 10 commandments, God's a summation of his Old Testament law. Yeah, that's really cool. Let's say that he meant that. I think he totally meant yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. It sounds good on a podcast. For my nerdy brain, I wanted to fit it in <laughs> so bad and it was going to take so long. So I didn't even try. I didn't even bring in a teaching team. It yeah. was just not going to happen. Well, here we are. Here we are. One of the other questions that comes up a lot that um, when people approach the Old Testament law especially if you read it. So if you are like, I'm doing that Bible reading plan, let me read some Deuteronomy. You just get about halfway in and you're like, what is going on? Right? Like, Uh what are these laws? Like I can't wear mixed fabric clothing. Like I got to go sacrifice a lamb, but it's got to be this size and this, like whatever. And it's just so different and out there. And that's, I mean, a lot of times what people do too, is that's used by a lot of people who want to deconstruct their faith or who want to push back against Christianity. They point to that and they say, well, you say, I got to follow these rules. You say I got to follow Jesus, whatever, but you're telling me that I don't have to follow these rules. Like, why are you, there's inconsistency. You're a hypocrite, whatever, which yes, all Christians are hypocrites. We all say one thing and and do another. That's why the gospel is good, but it's, it's actually pretty clear when you, when you think about it a little bit more. And so one of the ways that theologians throughout, uh, throughout church history have talked about the law is they found it helpful to break it up into three categories. And this is not, uh, a one for one. It's not like you can just slam these categories and all the laws fit perfectly. You're not going to read through Deuteronomy and Moses go, Hey, this is the ceremonial. Like, you're not going to find that, but it's theologians are going to scripture, trying to make helpful categories to help us understand the differences and why some laws uh, are helpful for today, applicable today, and some are not. And those three categories are this, they're, they're moral laws. There are ceremonial laws, and then there are judicial or civil laws. So as you read the laws God gave to Israel, some of those are ceremonial. Some of those are, hey, when you approach the temple, when you approach your sacrifices, these are some of the steps you need to take. These are some of my laws guiding how you worship, which we know uh, so many, if not all of them, were fulfilled in the sacrifice of Jesus, the one true sacrifice. Then you have judicial and civil laws. So one of the things we forget is that Israel was a nation, right? It wasn't, it wasn't just the people of God. It was the people of God, but they were a nation. They had to have laws and civil laws and rules, and they were supposed to be the people and nation of God. And so God gave them laws to say, hey, if you're going to be governed, this is how you should govern. This is how you should think about and live in relationship to one another. And then you have the moral laws, which is often what we think about with the Ten Commandments and things like that. It's these moral laws that come out of the character of God that uh, at times may be applied uniquely in the context of the Israelite people, but the, the morality behind them are true even today. And so there are ways that, that we personally won't experience uh, temptation to break the Sabbath, right? So that's, that's a commandment God has given for his people. Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Jesus doubles down on that uh, in the New Testament. For us, our temptation to break the Sabbath might not look like going to get our donkey out of a hole, right? We don't have donkeys falling into pits. That's not a temptation for us, but we have other ways that we're tempted to, to forget the Sabbath. And so those moral laws might be applicable in different ways, given the context that you're in, but the heart of them are still the same where God is taking a people, setting them apart for, for himself. Anything you would, you would add to that? 
Yeah. So when I think of the the lawyer, the guy who was an expert at the law, asking Jesus, "What are the most important? What is the most important commandment?" And Jesus says, "Love God." He quotes the Shema, Deuteronomy, "Love the Lord your God." And along with that, he quotes, "Love your neighbor as yourself." So Jesus gives two commandments and says it is really one commandment. So the way that helps me think through when someone says, well, how do you explain this crazy law and this crazy law? Why don't you obey that? Uh, It is helpful for me to wrap my mind around. Jesus says, all the law is summed up in loving God, loving your neighbor. And then all of these crazy laws in the Old Testament are really extrapolations that fit within their context. So the nation of Israel surrounded by pagan gods. So Uh, morally, yes, they need to be holy as God is holy. They need to reflect his character. But even when it comes to their dietary customs, what they wear, how they dress, what they celebrate, there are all these laws that are fitting within that specific context. And we are no longer in that context. Jesus has paid the sacrifice once and for all. He is not trying to build a nation. He is trying to build a church across all the nations. And so we are called to reflect his moral character uh, and still we are to apply to our context, what is loving God and what, what does loving neighbor look like in our specific situation? Yeah, that's that's, that's what helps me. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I also think it's really helpful to know that lots of people, when they do the Bible reading plan, they always complain about Leviticus, but love your neighbor as yourself is Leviticus 19. And people's favorite Bible verse, whether they are a Christian or not, is smack dab in the middle of Leviticus with all of these confusing laws and regulations. So there's there's some merit to Leviticus. It's also the beauty of, right, if all those laws are God trying to say, this is the holiness I require. This is the holiness that I desire for my people. And it, so much so, there are so many laws around it that our eyes glaze over and we fall asleep, right? It's just brutal to get through if we're being Mm -hmm. honest. And that all of that was fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus, that he fulfilled the entirety of the law and abolished it. He even said, I came to fulfill it. That's incredible, right? That books and books of God giving laws to his people and Jesus in his personhood and his divinity fulfills all of that so that we don't have to. Yeah, we're freed up. Uh, Second question for you, how did studying this passage impact you? So one of my default sins is legalism, control, pride, thinking, uh, even I think about the sermon, preaching to lawbreakers and, and law followers. So those who know I can't measure up and those who think they can and how the gospel is good news for both. And I'm, I'm squarely in that second category of, of knowing I can't measure up. And one of the funny things about being someone who struggles with legalism is you kind of doing both. So you both try and think you can measure up and also are fully aware of how you can't at the same time. And so it creates this double guilt that you put on yourself of both. I think I should be able to, and I'm more aware that I can't. It's just this weird kind of double, double whammy. Um, But one of the things that, that that passage just was really, the Lord was teaching me through it was that reality that the gospel saves us and keeps us. And so there's this default uh, for legalistic Christians, those who, who want to earn their favor before God, to understand the gospel saves, to understand the gospel uh, and the good news of Jesus is what cleanses me from my sin by his blood, what makes me right with God, what brings me into the family of God, wakes me up from death to life. But then there's this sense of now I got to get busy. Now I got to, okay, yeah, gospel saves me, but now I got to start doing some stuff. I got to start keeping myself, whatever. And uh, there's a verse that that 
Now, my wife quotes a lot and is really, really fond of. It's Galatians 3, 2 and 3. The verse says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish having begun by the spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? And so there's this innate desire within those of us who lean that way to want to move past the gospel. We think the gospel saves us and then we stop being recipients once we've gotten uh grace and love. And then we get busy doing and trying. And that, that phrase where Paul says, I am the worst of sinners is so powerful because this is a guy at this point in his life has been doing ministry for 30 plus years, right? Like he, he's not new to, to the, to the gospel. He's not new to grace. He's not new to ministry. He's planted dozens of churches. He's suffered for the sake of the gospel. He's preached. He's been beaten up. He's been imprisoned. All He's been betrayed, all of this stuff. And he gets there 30 years later and he's still saying, I am the worst of sinners. If there's anybody in church history that shouldn't have to make that claim, it's probably Paul, right? But Paul's journey of spiritual maturity, his journey of discipleship, his getting closer to Jesus didn't mean that he had a, a smaller view of his sin. It meant that he had a bigger view of his sin, which led to a bigger view of the gospel, that he realized 30 plus years into following Jesus, I have more awareness of my sin. And that's a good thing because I'm diving deeper into the well of the gospel and getting to swim in that. Um, this is a powerful thing, been a powerful thing for, for me this week. Yeah, that is helpful to know if you struggle with legalism the way to break up that hard heart of self-righteousness is a realization that you are a sinner and ongoing confession of sin before God and others. If if self-righteousness, you're trying to look good in front of others, confessing sin to them is one way to show, hey, I'm actually, uh, I'm not that big of a deal. You know? Yeah. I think that's really helpful and freeing. Yeah. Especially because Paul, they were everybody, Ephesus included, all the churches were like, you're not an actual apostle. Like they just grilled him on like, you're not worthy of doing what you're doing. You're not supposed to be what you, what you claim to be. And so he more than anybody else should like defend himself, right? He's like, no, I'm I'm apostle. I'm a follower of Jesus. Look at all my good works. But for him to be able to admit, I'm the worst. I'm the worst of sinners. Last thing, any follow-up questions people might have from the sermon? I don't know. Do you have any follow-up questions from the sermon, Jake? I was, I mean, the law stuff is the biggest one. Like, I mean, that's why even as we were prepping, it's like, that was my biggest question was, how do we parse through the law? How do we think about the law? All of those kinds of things. Um, anything that jumped out of you from teaching team? Where does the rubber meet the road as far as, okay, I'm the worst of sinners. I think we could probably, there might be some room to unpack when we talk about engage the hard. And let's say you're new to our church family, or wow. let's say, hey, I've been doing this for a while, doing the life group thing. Confessing sin still hard. Do I really have to do it? Yeah. So I think, in those times, I mean, I love that we have engaged the hard time for our life groups because it is a space every week that forces you into one of two things. So it either forces you to go, I'm going to own my sin and own the ways that I've rebelled against God internally, externally, whatever, or I'm going to be prideful. Like you got to get one or two options if we're being honest when it comes to engage the heart. And that doesn't mean that every week you got to come and just drop bombs. You know right. what I mean? Like you're allowed... People think with engaged the heart, you're not allowed to have good weeks. You're allowed to have good weeks that the way you're following Jesus and things are good. But it does make us come face to face with that reality each and every week of, am I going to own my sin before the Lord? Am I going to believe First John where he says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. Am I going to own the beauty of the gospel for me? Got Christ's blood on my behalf. Am I going to own that and believe it and give other people a chance to remind me of it, even if it's hard? Or am I going to, hide? Am I going to 
be unwilling to embrace that the gospel is still good news for me? Am I going to think I've moved past it? All of that. And so it's, I mean, it's a sad time every week to, to own before other people in the group. I'm the worst of sinners and I, I'm, I'm putting myself before the Lord. And I think one of our, our pastors was talking about this in teaching team that you only get that way. You only get to be able to say, I'm the worst of sinners when you're looking up, not looking side to side. And that, yeah. that's some of the temptation of the Christian life is we love comparing ourselves to other people's good deeds and other people's holiness and righteousness. So it's like, yeah, I'm not, you know, I'm not great, but I'm doing better than, than so-and-so. And, you know, compared to what they did or, or whatever, I'm serving this much or I'm, I'm doing this, whatever. And, but if you look vertically, if you look at God's standard, God's holiness, all of that crumbles. And you say with Isaiah and Isaiah six, like, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I can't dwell in the presence of this holiness. And so I think when we learn and engage the hard time, not to look side to side, but to look up, see our unholiness before God's holiness, we're then freed up to actually look correctly at, at each other, to not look at us in competition with one another, but look at us, all of us in that circle level before God, sinners saved by grace in need of, in need of Jesus. Yeah, that's good. I think along with that as well, yes, you can have good weeks. Absolutely. But if the pattern is you just never confess sin, or if the pattern is when you talk about sin, you talk about it in very vague surface level terms, I'd say that's actually pretty revealing of your heart posture towards the gospel. And I know many people that would have lots of Bible knowledge, been at, in church for a long time and would say that they really love Jesus. But when it comes to this part, people get really awkward really quickly. But this is a really practical, tangible way to experience the gospel afresh when you, like you said, stop looking side to side, look at Jesus and say, here is where I'm broken and messed up. And yes, it is scary. I think a lot of people, their objections to confessing sin is, but it's scary. Yeah, absolutely. It, it kind of is. But the good thing is Jesus covers us in his righteousness. So there is no shame or condemnation when I confess the deepest, darkest recesses of my soul. And if I don't know the deepest, darkest recesses of my soul, then I need to work on abiding with Jesus and being plugged into community. And that stuff will reveal itself over time. And rather than be scared of it, I can cling to the gospel even more. Tim, anything to plug? Always www.citizenscharlotte.com backslash give. That's G-I-V-E. Not the way we spell give during our sermon series. Not G-I-V. No, I will will plug this. So we had two commentaries, uh, biblical commentaries that we used a ton to get ready for this series. One of them is by kind of three editors, David Platt, Danny Aiken, and one other guy that is slipping me right now. Uh, but it's a commentary on First and Second Timothy and Titus. It's all three pastoral epistles, and it's just so helpful. I mean, it's it's so down to earth. They don't have super heady theological language. Like it's just easy to read, easy to access, and all of that. And so, if you're um, engaging with the sermon content, especially part of our Bible reading plan on Saturdays is we're revisiting the passage. So if you want to just kind of boost it up a little bit more, if you're like, I was having a conversation with one of our, our life group leaders this week, and they were saying just how much they were enjoying kind of digging into some of the words and some of the different uh, yeah, Greek and all that with, with their life group. And it's great. But so if you're looking for a resource, I just recommended it to them. I was like, Hey, this, this book has been super helpful, super accessible. I think it's like 12 bucks on Amazon, super affordable. I would highly recommend that book. I think you can get it on our, our website as well. Uh, 
But yeah, that book, Danny Aiken, David Platt, First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus commentary, um, would highly recommend. Cool. Thanks, Tim. Thank you, guys.